0: I think it's time to get started here. Our uh, sermon text today, our first uh, reading comes from Romans 9, and I will read verses 4 through 24. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise says. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, her forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his cause, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. Our sermon text today is from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build. But I will tear down, and they will be called wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Uh, so we are beginning uh, the next and final book in our multi-part series on the post-exilic prophets. So for the next few weeks, we will be studying uh, this book of Malachi. Malachi. Now, uh, since it's been a minute, uh, we need to remember that the post-exilic prophets consist of the books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And the key, and the reason we call them post-exilic, is because they are set after the great tragedy known as the Babylonian exile. Uh, in 587 BC, the kingdom of Judah, uh, you know, the heroes of uh, the Old Testament have been destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. And the city of Jerusalem, including Solomon's temple, has been burned to the ground. Much of the leadership and citizens of the kingdom of Judah have been taken captive in Babylon. Now, it's almost impossible to overstate the enormous psychic effect that this Babylonian destruction had on the Judeans. It caused them to question their identity as a people, and particularly as a people who were in relationship with God, who had made to them all sorts of promises of blessings beginning way back uh, with their great ancestors, Abraham and Moses. Now it seems as though God has abandoned his people. But there was hope. The Babylonian Empire had been overtaken by the Persian Empire under the uh, great King Cyrus. And this great King Cyrus had issued a decree in 539 BC allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild their civilization once again, ending this period of captivity in Babylon. Under the leadership of the governor of Judea, Zerubbabel, and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the temple, had been rebuilt in 516 BC. Now, it is sometime after these events that Malachi delivers his message. Now, we don't know the exact date. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah give us very precise dates. We can actually Uh, date Haggai to the very day uh, that he delivers his message but we're not given any date formula for Malachi our best guess that this is sometime after uh, Haggai and Zechariah probably around like 450 or so BC now Malachi holds special significance in scripture uh, because he's considered uh, traditionally as the last prophet Uh, A few more books were added to the Hebrew canon after Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles, and a few others. However, the direct word of God will no longer come to a prophet until we come to the time of Jesus with John the Baptist. Um, As we're going to see later, and uh, interestingly, as we lead up to Advent, uh, some of the prophecies of Malachi are connected uh, with John the Baptist. Now, as I said, uh, the message of Malachi occurs sometime after that of Haggai and Zechariah, perhaps as much as uh, 70 years later. And if you'll remember, Haggai and Zechariah were mainly concerned with rebuilding the temple and delivering visions of hope amid the difficult circumstances of the Judeans. Uh, Haggai had this uh, vision, a famous vision of God shaking the heaven and the land and the sea and the nations. And Zechariah contained these great visions of Jerusalem restored to unimaginable greatness and most importantly, the glory of the Lord returning in their midst. Now Malachi taking place uh, after uh, this temple has been firmly uh, built is mostly concerned with the point of the temple, which was worship especially in the midst of this disappointment and the delay of the fulfillment of these grandiose promises of Haggai and Zechariah. And so for us then, the message of Malachi will center around two issues that we as a faith community committing to realizing the full vision of a world filled with the glory of God grapple with. First, what is worship? And what does true worship look like? What does it mean to worship God? Uh, one thing we're going to see as we uh, go through Malachi is that this concept of worship encompasses more than just ritual, than coming to church on Sunday and saying the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it also includes what we would call ethics and social justice. Second, Malachi deals with issues of dashed hope, unfulfilled expectations, and unkept promises. As we seek to form a worshiping community, uh, holding fast to our faith, and yet we see a world uh, where the forces of hate are in ascendancy, where power and might uh, have greater sway over the world. And even in our Christian circles, the most outspoken passion lies with the worst representatives. And yet we too hold fast, waiting for the promise of a kingdom that has been, we have awaited for 2,000 years now. It is in this uh, setting that this uh, message of Malachi to ancient Judean refugees rebuilding an Iron Age civilization can still have relevance to us. So let's turn to the text now and learn what Malachi has to teach us. So if we look at verse 1, We read that the book of Malachi is an oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by the hand of Malachi. Now, this is pretty standard introductory formula, similar to to many uh, many we find in the prophetic books. Um, Interesting, the author uses the term oracle, which was used twice in Zechariah. And he also uses the phrase word of the Lord by the hand of, which was used in Haggai. So here Malachi is purposely tying himself in continuation with his fellow post-exilic prophets. But what I want us to do is focus on this word oracle. Now, uh, the Hebrew word used here is masa, uh, which is typically translated um, in other places as burden or heavy load. Uh, The picture here that we're supposed to think about is that this message given to Malachi is something that is difficult to bear. He must unload this message. He can't keep it to himself. He has to share it with the people or it will crush him under its weight. And I think this idea of a burden that must be shed communicates a key aspect, not just of Malachi, but of the prophets in general. Now, if we think about it, if we if we kind of abstract ourselves uh, from, from you know, this typical uh, churchy, Sunday school, pious view and, and, and translate this into real life, uh, if we look at Malachi and the other prophets of the Old Testament, we get this sense that they are so overwhelmed by the message they have received from God that they can't contain themselves. And these messages of the prophets are are pretty challenging in general to their hearers. The prophets are disruptors. They attack the comfortable status quo of the, that the audience has accepted. A prophet never just reinforces or confirms the belief of their hearers. Instead, a prophet confronts. The prophet, burdened with the message, this vision of God's justice, can't sit quietly, surrounded by a world that does not conform to his vision. He has to speak out and act Lest the dissonance consume him. Now, if you were an ancient Israelite, you would have probably found prophets super annoying. They, there you are, making your way of the world, you know, perhaps achieving a measure of peace and comfort. and all of a sudden this annoying loudmouth forces you to confront the ugliness that you have overlooked or ignored. Societies throughout all ages have sanitized their history and refused to see the contradictions that give them peace and comfort. And that's exactly what a prophet points out you know think about how upset that we've seen people get in their own lifetime when suggestions are made that American history should include uh, the contradiction of its founders fighting for liberty while enslaving others Uh, of expanding our nation but taking land from native peoples of uh, the exploitation of the railroads the ugliness of the Jim Crow laws it challenges our safe and comfortable virtuous and happy vision of who we are as a people Uh, This is exactly what the prophets were like. Yet, we need these people to challenge our visions. If you want to know what an ancient prophet was like, uh, I think the best example would be to look at somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, He burdened by the suffering he saw in the African American community, he forced middle class America to confront its idyllic 1950s vision of itself with the ugliness of segregation. King couldn't accept the way it was. He was burdened. He could not remain silent. He had to confront and challenge. King resembled a prophet in that he both challenged the status quo, but he also inspired an alternative and hopeful vision that America could be better. So you can see here how Malachi is challenging the people to confront their acceptance of their colorful, uh, comfortable status quo by how Malachi makes his argument. So if you look at verse two through five, uh, basically it follows this pattern. Malachi presents the statement, the statement, I have loved you, says the Lord. And it's followed by a challenge to that statement that represents the thoughts of the Judeans. Uh, How have you loved us? And Malachi then uh, answers that objection. And these verses are the first of six places in Malachi that he uses this same rhetorical device. Now, clearly Malachi is making a point by delivering his message in such a way. So the question then is, what is Malachi's purpose in presenting his arguments this way? Well, first, questions are engaging. Questions invite the hearer into a dialogue. However, I think there is more going on here. Malachi states the objection to this proposition that God loves his people clearly and boldly. The people, the problem is they no longer see evidence that God loves them. And I believe Malachi does this in order to force the people to confront their fears and emotions. The reason Malachi has to do this in such a stark manner is because the people have chosen to hide or deny these thoughts, So part of what Malachi is doing is provocatively transgressing their private thoughts in order to confront them with an issue they are trying to ignore or avoid. Malachi is exposing the people so they can deal with the issue that they have buried and become numb to. He is being purposely provocative in good prophetic tradition. And so the issue that Malachi wants to expose here is that on some level, The Judeans have lost faith that God loves them and is on their side. Now, remember what we've talked about. Remember what's happened in Israel's history. They've seen their land conquered by the Babylonians. Their cities razed to the ground. The destruction of their beautiful temple. And the people have forcefully been resettled in Babylon. While they returned, Israel is a far cry from what it once was. The temple Haggai had urged them to build was small and pathetic. Uh, The old old men who remembered Solomon's temple cried when they saw what a dump this new temple was. Zechariah and Haggai had both promised that God was on the move and God would return to Israel and judge her enemies for what they had done. Both prophets had inspired the people with the glorious visions of their future. Uh, Haggai said God would shake the heavens and all the treasures of the nations would return to Jerusalem and the temple would again be filled with his glory. God promised that the latter glory of the temple would be greater than the former and peace would reign. Now, though, it's been more than 50 years since Haggai and Zechariah. And it's important to understand this is the background to Malachi's message, or else you can have some real issues with uh, the message here. Because if you've noticed, and you probably have, uh, Malachi is using some pretty strong language here. And it's easy to find it offensive. After all, in answering Judea's concerns, Malachi compares them to the Edomites and states that while God loves Israel, God hates Edom. God then goes on to declare that not only has he trashed Edom, that even if Edom were to build up, God would tear it down again because he's angry with them forever. So that's pretty harsh. So why is God so upset at Edom? So let's talk about Edom. So uh, way back in Genesis... Abraham's son Isaac had two twin boys named Jacob and Esau. Now Esau is born first, and as a result, according to the customs of the time, he should inherit the great birthright of Abraham. But after an incident in which he nearly starves to death after a hunting trip, Esau trades this birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. Uh, Jacob goes on to become the ancestor of the Israelites, while Esau becomes the ancestor of Of our friends the Edomites here. Now, it's interesting uh, as the story goes on that despite being the ancestor of the Israelites, the heroes of our story of the Old Testament, Jacob is portrayed throughout Genesis as basically being a jerk. Uh, Now, Esau, uh, you know, he initially wants to kill Jacob, but, uh, you know, his anger seems pretty justifiable after his brother cheated him out of the birthright. Uh, For the most part, though, Genesis portrays Esau pretty positively. Uh, Eventually, Esau becomes kind of a hero. He shows mercy to his conniving brother, Jacob. The Edomites are also viewed favorably in Scripture. When the Israelites journeyed to Canaan from Egypt, God warns them to respect the territory of the Edomites because their land had been given to them by God, and they were related to the Israelites. Here's a quote from Deuteronomy 23. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Now, there's a big change, though, because of the Babylonian conquest. The Edomites actually aided the Babylonians during the siege of Jerusalem. And this was seen as a particularly ugly betrayal since the Israelites and Edomites were ethnically related. Uh, So just, you know, for for future reference here, in case you're curious, um, this topic of the Edomite punishment for their betrayal of the Israelites is what the book of Obadiah is about. So if you've ever wanted to know what Obadiah is about, that's it. Uh, In any event, it seems that this disdain for the Edomites is justified. Yet, there is something uh, that we find offensive about God condemning a whole group of people and declaring that he hates them. It seems completely incompatible with the idea that God is love. So, you know, what do we do with these verses? And I think it's a question we ought to confront. It bothers me. First, I think it's important to remember the difficult context in which these words are being addressed. Israel was spiritually depressed because of the events of the Babylonian exile and the disappointment of its aftermath. Israel felt abandoned by God. And so this message is not so much about judging Edom as it is about assuring Israel that God is still bound to them. And what Israel needs to understand is that God's love for Israel is not some superficial, general love in the abstract but a special, deeply personal, discriminating love. Second, this language shouldn't be thought of in the terms we typically think of uh, love and hate as emotions. This language that's used here is not about feelings. Actually, it's covenant language. Uh, So we get to talk about covenants for a minute. My favorite. Uh, The key to the relationship between God and Israel was the covenant. The covenant is foundational to understanding how God operates with his people. So a covenant was an oath made between two parties, usually two kingdoms in which loyalty was pledged. The oath was made before the divine gods of the kingdoms and the gods were responsible for overseeing that the provisions of the covenant were carried out. Failure of one party to comply with the terms of the covenant resulted in the curses inflicted upon them by the gods. And these arrangements, these covenant arrangements, were ubiquitous in the ancient world. We have many preserved examples of the covenant documents. I have whole books about them. I sit around and read them so much because I like them. But interesting enough, the language in these ancient covenants is very stylized. Covenants refer to the two parties in familiar terms, like father and son, brother. Love and hate are also frequently used in these covenant documents. But love and hate in the context of a covenant shouldn't be thought of as an emotion, but more like what we would call loyalty. So if we understand the terms love and hate in the context of the covenant, then the Judean's response to Malachi's question, how have you loved us, becomes clearer. The people want to know that given their disloyalty, given their conquest by the Babylonians, given the difficulty of their lives after the return to Jerusalem, given their disappointment of the temple, given their continual dominion by the Persians, is this covenant between God and his people still in effect? Is God still loyal to them? Is the basis for their existence as a people still present? Is the foundation of their very identity still in effect? Do they have a future as a people? Understood this way, the question is not quite as impious as you might think. Given their circumstances, it's, it's a reasonable thought. And what Malachi wants the people to understand is that despite their precarious situation, God is still loyal to them. They are the chosen people, and the proof can be seen in recent geopolitical events. Both Edom and Israel have faced destruction, and yet only Israel has come back. This wasn't normal. Once civilizations are uh, beaten and deported, they didn't come back. It's nothing short of miraculous. And the only explanation is that this covenant is still in effect, which means God is still loyal to them which means they still have a purpose and a future. And this is the message that Malachi needs his people to hear right from the start of this book. The strength of the relationship between God and Israel is foundational to everything else Malachi will have to say in this book. In fact, this special covenant relationship God has with Israel is absolutely key to the whole story of the Bible. It is this personal, exclusive, special relationship that Malachi opens his book with, and it's absolutely essential that the people understand this and have confidence that they are still the chosen people of God. This special relationship between God and this particular people, uh, Israel, is critical to understanding God's plan for the world. In the biz, in the theology biz, we call this the doctrine of election, the idea that God has chosen a people for himself. Now, it's also this doctrine of election that makes us really, really uncomfortable. And I think this concern is justified. Our last century has demonstrated over and over again the horrors of groups who declare themselves chosen, committing unbelievable atrocities <laughs> against the other not so chosen groups. So as a people who have in recent memory witness Jim Crow segregation, South African apartheid, Bosnian genocide, not to mention the Holocaust, we may be forgiven our sympathy for Edom and our uneasiness at any group who might think of themselves as God's chosen people, especially when this very doctrine has been used by Christians over the centuries to justify our own atrocities. And I think it's here that Paul, in our passage from Romans, is helpful. Because in this passage, Paul actually quotes these verses from Malachi. Uh, You may have picked that up when we were reading this. Now, this is a long passage, and I actually tried really hard to figure out a way to make it a little more manageable. Um, But in the end, I decided that this was an important enough issue that we need to see how Paul develops it in its entirety. So uh, turn with me now to to chapter 9. I'm going to try to go through this uh, sort of quickly, but it'll help if you're looking at the verses. Now, uh, we start in chapter 9, verse 4. Paul begins by discussing the chosen uh, status of Israel. As God's people, they had been given much. They had been adopted by God. That's another way of talking about election. They have been given the covenant, the law, the future promises of God's work in the world. <clears throat> and Paul here is addressing the question that if this is so, what has happened? Why are the Jews still an obscure people with no power firmly in the clutches of the power of Rome? It seems if anyone is the chosen people, it's the Romans, which incidentally is the name of Paul's letter here. And so it seems likely this is a relevant question to its audience. It's also the same question the Judeans have in Malachi. Paul then goes on to explain, using examples in Israel's history to answer this question by showing that Paul's audience is thinking about things all wrong. They don't understand election. After all, just because you were a descendant from Abraham, just because you were a Jew, does not mean anything. After all, Esau was the grandson of Abraham and Esau was not included. Nor is this unjust, because as Paul tells us, God is free to choose. Verse 17, if you look at verse 17, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart because he wanted to. He wanted to use Pharaoh for his own purpose. He is like a potter who can do what he wants with his clay. However, the key point I think here is that God does not harden Pharaoh's heart arbitrarily, but as it says in 17, He does it for a purpose. And the purpose is that God's name might be known in the world. And it's this fact that causes Paul's argument to take a turn. Remember, that's exactly the vision Haggai and Zechariah were talking about, that the earth would be filled with God's glory. Now, while Paul asserts God's freedom by talking about potters and clay, Paul then begins to examine the purpose of God's election. What is God's choosing all about? And in verse 22, Paul begins by asking, "What if?" And here Paul uses "what if?" Because the next thought is so radical that Paul disguises it, I think, here is a question. What if the point of election? What if the point of all of Jewish history, what if the point of being chosen was not about glory and power and all the other crap you think about that so embodied Rome? What if the point was rather about suffering wrath? Suffering wrath so that others might experience the riches of God's glory and mercy. What if the point of being chosen is not for the benefit of the chosen, but for the benefit of others? What if being chosen is about making known the riches of God's glory for vessels of mercy, which was all along the plan? What if those God had prepared hand for glory were the other, the non-chosen? Even those who he called not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. So if we think about this as a whole, if we look back at the question Paul began with, If the Jewish people are chosen, why do they look more like losers? And does that mean God's purpose has failed? We can see it's essentially the same question of Malachi. Are we still God's chosen people? Because it seems like we are losers, and those future hopes that Haggai and Zechariah were talking about have failed. And Paul's answer is that you have misunderstood the nature of what it means to be chosen. It is precisely in this failure, this suffering that leads to ultimate glory because it leads to glory, not for your own sake, but for others. Election then is not about simply receiving blessing, but rather the purpose and vocation that Israel had been set aside for, that they had been chosen for, to suffer the judgment of God because of their sin, but on behalf of the world. So that the riches of his glory may be known not just to Israel, but to the Gentiles and everyone else. Now, if that sounds familiar, we will find that if we continue to read Romans, that spoiler alert, that vocation is exactly enacted and embodied and exemplified in Jesus Christ. Here we see the gospel Was it not necessary that the Messiah, the anointed representative of Israel, must suffer these things and enter into glory? So here's the lesson Malachi has for us. I can summarize it in two points. Sermon's running long, so mercifully I can summarize it in two points. First, if you are here and are a Christ follower, then know this. No matter what the circumstances or appearances, God has called you and loved you and chosen you and you are his. And this love that he has is a fiercely loyal love. It's not a general, abstract, weak-kneed, hippie, kumbaya kind of love. It is a selective, particular, individual love, just as God chose Israel and set them apart from all other nations of the earth as his chosen people. However, as great as this status is, And as much as it is to be celebrated and treasured, this status is about responsibility, a vocation. And this is not just about us sitting around feeling superior because we have been chosen and blessed and others have not. That is not the point, and it will lead exactly to the disappointment felt by Malachi and Paul's audience, if that's what we think. Because the point of being the chosen people is to be the ones who sacrifice for God's purpose of lifting up the Gentile, the other, the non-chosen, so that his name may be known throughout the earth. Second, here's the thing about Edom. Edom ceased to function as a kingdom after it was absorbed in the Babylonian Empire. After Babylon, the Edomites were pushed out of the and the Nemedium kingdom took Edom's place. That means that God didn't fulfill his promise in Malachi by zapping them or raining fire down from heaven. Rather, Edom was just crushed by history in the course of normal geopolitical events. Israel, on the other hand, returned in a way that ancient kingdoms did not. Now, we can argue about the reasons for this, but it's remarkable. It's unprecedented. One could even say miraculous. And that's the point I want to make. Israel was restored and had hope because Israel was God's chosen people, set aside for God's special purpose. And therein lies our options. We can surrender to the forces of history and be crushed like Edom, Or we can trust and place our faith in a God who loves us selectively, particularly, and individually. Placing our hope in a God who created this world and wants to bless this world and who loves this world in such a way, and its people in a way that causes him to sacrifice his people and ultimately his own son to bring about this blessing and make it a reality. A love that is more powerful than geopolitical events a love that is more powerful than empire, a love that is more powerful than even death. It is the faith in this love that gives us the real hope that as Zachariah said, will lead us to the Lord becoming one king over all the earth. And then on the day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Or as Paul puts it in another place, in the end, the only thing that remains is faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Amen.